Welcome to the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. Hi, everyone. Scott Cowan here. Welcome to this episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast. Uh, Today, you're going to be listening to a conversation I had with Brian Naren. Brian is one of the co-authors of the book Rusted Metal. Rusted Metal is the guide to Northwest heavy metal and hard rock music from about 1970 to 1995. This book weighs in at over 900 pages. There's over 600 bands referenced. There's over 100 interviews. It's packed full of Washington State music history. It's it's amazing book. It's it's cool. Brian is also the part owner of, of Northwest Metalworks, which is a record label that is re-releasing some heavy metal and hard rock music from the Pacific Northwest. They've done some pretty cool stuff. You should check them out if you're into that genre of music. There'll be links in the show notes for all of that. So sit back, listen in. This is a great episode. Brian's a good guy. Known Brian since junior high school. Had no idea he was going to be an author. Just like he had no idea I was going to be a podcast host. So I think you're going to like this one. Check it out. Let us know. Send us comments, feedback. If you've got any ideas for guests that we should be interviewing, please share them with us. Would love, love a review. Share this podcast with people. We'd appreciate it. Help get the word out as we do our best to promote the great state of Washington. All right, let's get started. My guest today is Brian Nairn. Um, Brian and I go back to Ford Middle School. Indeed. That's kind of creepy when you think about that. I thought when I was doing this with Wands that he'd be the person I've known the longest. But technically, I think you're going to have that title, even though we haven't talked in a lot of years. Right. So, Brian, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for being here. Thanks, Scott. So, Brian, you are one of the authors for Rusted Metal. And this is a guide to heavy metal, heavy metal music in the Northwest. How did you guys come up with this idea? Give us the story. Um, so myself, I've always been into music um, and especially local music. Um, and a friend of mine, James Beach, who's the primary writer for the book. Um, I've known him for about 30 years and we shared a lot of the same types of likes and music. Um, he, uh, He's a writer by trade, um, um, did uh, a magazine called Dark Discoveries for several years, um, focused on horror and sci-fi, and, uh, but he did a few uh, issues of the magazine related to those subjects with music, so focusing like on the soundtracks um, to these, these horror movies or sci-fi. And over the years, he and I have always talked about you know, music and the, what we like about it. And, and, um, and we got on a conversation that's been quite a while ago, seven or eight years ago. And, uh, um, we said, man, there's been some books out, uh, about the local scene, mostly revolving around, uh, the early nineties when grunge exploded and, and, um, so there's biographies and all those kinds of bands, Nirvana and Soundgarden, Alice in Chains. Um, um, and we were like, God, you know, you know, there's never really been uh, an in-depth look at the hard rock scene. And um, kind of my joke way back in the 90s uh, with friends or people that I knew in the music industry they're, you know, they would go, oh, it must be great to live in Seattle where, you know, Nirvana and Soundgarden are from. And I said, yeah, it is. 
but you should have seen the scene that came before it. And they're like, well, what do you mean? It's like, oh, we've always had this rich musical um, environment scene here. Um, and so then I would start breaking into, you should have seen, you know, uh, culprit. You should have seen the heats. You should have seen the allies. You should have seen, you know, early, the early Queensryche years. Uh, there was just a ton of bands and they never really got a lot of coverage. Um, some of the books that would come out in the nineties, they, they were mostly focused on that sort of grunge and punk scene that was in the area. And then there'd just be a little sliver of the book where they would talk about hard rock. And so James and I thought, you know, we should really do write a book. So about six years ago, we decided we were going to write a book and, and, and rusted metal is the result of all of that work. So since this is an audio only podcast, I, I'm going to try to give our listeners and the description. This thing weighs, what does the paperback weigh? Do you think the paper Four pounds, five pounds, it weighs 5.87 pounds. Okay. So almost six pounds. Like a phone book. It's, yeah, it's like a phone book. It's 900 some pages. You guys went nuts here. Yeah, it, it kind of got out of control. Um, we, we started out by thinking that we could write a story about the scene. Mm-hmm. And as we were writing it, and with the interviews that we did, we knew right away that it was going to be difficult to put everything in kind of a like chronological order. So what we decided to do was that with the band bios, we'd put them in alphabetical order. Okay. We did the interviews. We, we inserted the interviews in with the bands that were associated with the interview E. Um, and we decided that it was, this was going to be a, a reference guide. And the nice thing about reference guides is that there's not that pressure to like read this thing stem to stern that, right. that you can just go and grab it when inspiration strikes and go, well, Hey, who was the bass player and culprit or, you know, where was this, where was this venue that all these great bands played in? Well, you could just go back to it. And, and it's like a kind of like a lifetime book, you know, you would be able just to use it and keep it and, and you would be able to discover new things all the time. Um, our goal was to be, you know, like 300 to 400 pages. And again, this thing just exploded and and the interest once word got out, then, you know, we had, we had, uh, people, musicians, friends coming at us going, Hey, you know, I've got stories. Uh, you should make sure this band's in there. And so this thing just grew and grew. One of the things that when I was flipping through this and I've read some of the articles, by no means have I read the whole book, I can't say that, but I'm really impressed with the volume of photographs and playbills and you guys just, there's a ton of stuff in this thing. Is this from your collections or did, did the guests, the interviews help you? Uh, I would say that 70% of the images in the book are part of my collection, James uh, Beach, James Tolan, and uh, Jim Sutton. So yes, we're wow. we're music enthusiasts. We're also music memorabilia collectors, and so um, we also knew that that was going to make for a very interesting book. Um, having as much imagery as possible to 
illustrate the stories we were telling and and giving history. So it's 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 a bit of a it's a bit of a piece of memorabilia. It's like going to the museum without actually having to leave the house kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I looking back at some of these photos I'm like going were they that young then? I mean, some of these guys are like, I haven't seen them. You know, you don't think about um, how much we've all aged, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, in 30, 40 years. It's like, wow. So approximately how many musical acts are in this book? I mean, as far as like mentions, bios. how many bios, how many bios did you guys do? There's like 620 band bios. Wow. And since this is all about Washington state and this is a Northwest book, approximately how many do you think are Washington state based? Um, I would say that, I would say that uh, probably 75% of the bands uh, listed are Washington state. Um, there's a, 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 the next largest percentage would be uh, Oregon. Um, okay. a, a few from, uh, from uh, Idaho and British Columbia. we some people will disagree with us, but we, we, we kind of feel that because of the connection with Vancouver, BC and the bands and they all played kind of this circuit, um, mm-hmm. we, we thought we'd include as many of those bands as we could. Uh, by no means is this a complete guide of all the bands. Um, you know, this is basically the bands we knew about and a ton of bands we didn't know about and did research. And, and as I say, you know, people reached out to us and said, hey, I was in a band. And we ran from this time to this time and we did have a seven inch single. And so it was like, yeah, you know, great. Tell us more. And then you also cover venues and you kind of have a, I mean, there's just a lot of everything in here. So we'll come back to venues. Let's get, let's keep talking about the artists. So when you guys got started on this, how, how easy was it for you to make contact with, with these musicians? Were they um, willing to be part of it? I mean, I'm going to guess most were probably pretty happy to be part of it, but how easy was it to get a hold of these folks? Um, um, some people were really, were really excited about it. I think uh, um, like uh, one of our first, one of our first uh, interviews was with uh, a guy who had a band in the seventies and eighties. Um, the band was called whiskey stick and we discovered him, um, visa the internet. Uh, we, we, we saw some YouTube sort of videos with, uh, images of the band, but we heard their music and we were like, wow, this is just incredible music. And why didn't we ever hear any more about these guys? You know, uh, and his name was Mark Bugas. Uh, and, uh, so he was really excited because they did a lot of work decades ago that never came to fruition. And um, so they were really excited to be a part of it. Now, some people, some bands, um, we, we requested some time to do interviews and, and they weren't interested. Um, some people, we, we, you know, we had people in mind that we wanted to talk to. And so it was just a matter of, you know, some social media is great because, you know, you can find people, um, and, but we knew a lot of these people too. We were friends with a lot of these musicians. So it was pretty easy to, to get most of the people. Um, and there were some people, like I said, we would have loved to interview, but, uh, for whatever reason they, they opted not to, and that's fine. But, um, but the fact that it took us, mm, it probably took us five years to write it, four and a half years to write it, about a year and a half to edit it all. 
Jeez. Wow. Yeah. Good for you guys for being, you know, persistent and seeing it to, through. So many of us would have given yeah. up and it'd be stored on our computers on hard drive as a PDF somewhere for yeah. years to come. I think that's, it's very cool. A lot of trips up and down the I-5. So, yeah. so let me ask you this question. So all these bands at one time were in the Pacific Northwest. We'll just talk about Washington. Are most of the members still in Washington or have they dispersed? I mean, were you able to find, I mean... Yeah, I mean, there's still a lot of people who, you know, still live in the same part of town in Tacoma or in Seattle where they used to. You know, there's uh, there's a lot of musicians that live in L.A. now and or live in Florida, you know. But, uh, you know, again, thanks to Zoom interviews, phone interviews, you know, we're able to track people down. And and we we did a lot of face to face as much as we could because we felt like, um you get a different story. You get a more complete story when you're looking somebody in the eyes and they recognize that you're, you're sincere. You know, they mm-hmm. might give you a little bit more information than just a, a list of questions on an email. Sure. No, I, and I a hundred percent agree with you. I mean, zoom works. Okay. But I think being in person is plus you get the kind of the, I don't know, the nonverbal cues from them. Oh yeah. Yeah. That if you're like going down a good path or a bad path. And and part of it too is is being face to face. Like I said, people can can sense kind of who you are, and and they know what your intentions are, and 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 uh, you know that was really important for us because we wanted people to open up about things, not only just give us the facts, but you know maybe tell us things they wouldn't normally tell us, um, just just for a, a better story, because um, you know people. You know, bands are like marriages, you know, sometimes they, they fell apart and and people are still I mean, it's amazing. Some people are still like at odds after three, four decades. And and some of it was real hurtful for some people. And and so we never really pushed our, our goal. Our aim with this book was to make people happy. Um, and we have I mean, we've had people email us and go, I can't believe you have our band in here. That's so great. I mean, we were just like a, you know, we were a band for like eight months. We put out a tape. We thought it was great, and then nothing ever came of it, and we just broke up. And you guys found us, and you know, put us in print. So you know, we we exist. Yeah, we, or, or, yeah. That's. So, did you find when you guys were out there reaching out to people? Did you find? Did you uncover any music that wasn't hadn't? You know, did somebody say, "Oh, I we did this years ago, or we did this last month," and you guys should listen to it. Yeah. You know, that was, that was kind of an interesting byproduct of starting this book was, um, as collectors, we're, we're always looking for these, these hard to find gems, you know, people put out records and put out tapes and, and, uh, you know, this was before the CD era in, in a lot of cases for bands. Um, and so James and I decided that, gosh, if we're going to, we're, we're uncovering all this stuff and people are offering up, you know, information and their music. Uh, would I, it'd be great to get some of this stuff out. Cause some of it just was so limited in its release when it came out or in the case of like whiskey stick, they had recorded everything and they just never put it to wax. It fell apart Why? and they just put it away. And what so, happened there? Yeah. So we, so we decided, well, let's start a record label. Sure. Why not? And, um, so we, um, 
we started out with a, a, a compilation with 11 different bands spanning the, the time between 76 and 91. And they were all pretty varied. And we got permission for every song. Um, and and all 11 artists were, were eager to have, um, you know, like a demo song, something never released uh, on this. And they were happy with a copy of the album when it was done. So, so we, so we did a, a limited edition of 500. That's, that's kind of our model. Um, mm-hmm. we usually do like a, um, like a, a color for a hundred or 150 and the rest are black vinyl. And, and so it all kind of ties in really nice. So we've, we've presented, uh, some new music to the world. We kind of consider ourselves a uh, rock and roll archivist or, and, archaeologists I mean, we've we've found we found things that we really thought were good and should be out there and and so yeah so we've we've put out uh, seven records now wow. of of bands gone by um but it's interesting that some of the bands from that time from the 80s and the 90s some of those bands are still active and uh give me an example um We've got TKO. TKO was kind of the was kind of the ACDC or Van Halen of Seattle. They were they were a really big band in the late seventies and early mid eighties. Um, they're still somewhat active. Uh, lots of members changing hands as they've always have, but Brad Sinsel, the singer, is still the constant in that band. Um, You've got bands like Queensryche that are, you know, that band is still thriving. Um, Jeff Tate on his own in in his Operation Mindcrime band is still thriving. Um, th- those guys are all real active, obviously on, on a national and international scale. Um, uh, Culprit is reformed, um, and then you know a lot of guys that were in, uh, like I like I've mentioned before, and you know, even kind of the kind of hard rock dance bands. Uh, a lot of those musicians are still pretty active, you know, Steve Pearson, Steve Alliment, those guys, they, you know, they'll never, they'll never stop playing. Um, but no, again, with whiskey stick, we just the, the involvement with them, getting them in this book, getting this record out that they've, they wanted to put out 30 years ago, uh, they've got reformed and played some shows. So um, our activities have sparked, uh, interest in a lot of those bands, um, you know, reforming. So it's been kind of a good thing. Yeah. I was looking on your website. It's pretty interesting what you guys have available for sale. So we'll put a link below the episode yeah. so that people want to check it out. They can do that. That's, you know, happy to do that. And people should go listen to, I, I think, you know, music is, I don't have the collection like you do. I, you, you're sitting there behind a wall of, <laughs> hundreds that I can see. And I'm going to guess if you move the camera, it would continue for a few more feet each way. It would be. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it's, that's been your, been your thing in life. Been my passions. It's, it's yeah. the, the one constant since I was a, a small kid, it's just kind of filled my soul. You know, it's an aesthetic of life and yeah. Yeah. So how many interviews did you conduct? Um, I was part of, uh, I was either, um, the central figure or part of uh, the, the duo, or in some cases there was three of us doing interviews, um, probably in half of them, okay. I would say. Yeah. 
So I bet there was some stories that you could tell about some of these interviews, things that went great, things that might not have gone so well. Any funny moments there that you can uh, share? Oh, you know, there's, there's lots of, there's lots of interesting stories uh, and fun stuff. Um, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of things we ended up not putting in the book. Um, sure. it's interesting when you're interviewing people and, um, we know what, we know what our goal is. And we had a number of people would say, Hey, this next part, I want you to leave it out of the book, but I, I want to tell you this story because it'll give you context of the other stuff I'm going to tell you. Um, and we also, we tried to avoid, um, we want to make people happy with this book. We don't want right. to be telling a bunch of salacious stories, although we heard tons of them. Um, and uh, not in rock and roll, never. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so we, you know, try to keep it, uh, try to keep it as uh, on, you know, I don't know, if clean is the right word, but we just didn't want anybody. Feelings, we didn't want anybody's feelings to get hurt, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I mean, yeah, there were some fun stories about. Um, Gosh, uh, yeah, I keep going back. To, I keep going back to Whiskey Stick, um, just because there was a, a ton of a ton of great activity with those guys um, before they were a band uh, as Whiskey Stick. They, the the main characters in the band were in a band called United Flight, and um, they were kind of a deep purplish kind of band uh, driven by a, a Hammond B three organ. Um, and when Deep Purple came over in 1969 for, I believe, their second American tour, all of their gear got hung up in customs. And they were starting the show in in Salem at the Salem Armory. And, in Salem, Oregon? Yes. Okay. And, okay. and then they came up to Seattle and they did Spokane. Uh, but beings that... You know, the Hammond B3, if you know what that is, it's a huge instrument. It's like 700 pounds, and uh, not a lot of people had those, and they were very expensive. It just so happened that um, Terry, the organist keyboard player in United Flight, had one in his band. And so he contacted uh, Deep Purple's management back then and said, hey, I got you covered. Um, You can borrow my Hammond. And they're like, well, do you want to open up for us? And so they ended up opening up for Deep Purple, and uh, and uh, John Lord, the the keyboard player in Deep Purple, autographed the inside of his his Hammond B three organ, and uh, and you know he uh, he still played that thing till until he passed on, but they used it in Whiskey Stick as well. That was kind of a fun story. Um, yeah, with that, um, you know. Um, with some of the local 80s shows, um, we had some pretty famous people come through town um, um, in these little local bars. And sometimes the stories got away from people. But uh, there was a there was a time in 81 when um, Def Leppard was in town for their I think it was the second their second show ever in Seattle. And and. Uh, they went to a, a club called the end zone and uh, they were in between gigs between the Seattle and, and Portland gig and they had a day off. And so they got talked into going to make this promotional appearance at the end zone, which was um, like a video arcade with a stage. So they had a band playing and 
They had all kinds of video games and loud music playing. And apparently the band wasn't all that happy about spending their afternoon they at this video arcade. They wanted to do something different. Uh, as it turns out, the, they show up and the owner and the promoter gave each guy like a big wad of quarters. And so they, they, they played video games. And there was a band playing on the stage. And the band, one of the bands, was called The Mob. And okay. Mob had this lead singer that everybody wanted in their band. A band called Myth played with them, too. Well, Jeff Tate from Queensryche sang with the mob that day. And, oh, okay. uh, and uh, so years later, um, uh, Joe Elliott would make some comments about how he discovered Queensryche. Queensryche. They were, in an arcade. Yeah. Um, Lita Ford played uh, Lake Hills. Uh, back in like eighty uh, two, um, Lake Hills was that was in Bellevue, right? Yes, it was in Bellevue's uh, crossroads uh, neighborhood. Um, it was a it was a skating rink, and uh, uh, it had been uh, it had been a venue for music and skating since like the fifties, and uh, a lot of famous a lot of famous musicians went through that place over the years, and. Uh, that was kind of the epicenter of, of the, of the East side hard rock scene. Um, a promoter, Craig cook, um, and Brett Miller and a couple other people were, were booking shows and having battle of the bands. And, uh, um, many bands played there. Um, rail played there. Um, TKO, uh, shadow with Mike McCready. Um, we had, uh, overlord uh just tons and tons of bands uh and some of these guys went on to to bigger and better things uh but it was a it was a scene that started in that area and uh a lot of people consider it again kind of the epicenter of the hard rock scene in the pacific northwest you mentioned mike mccready i was kind of looking at the, the the bio you guys did on him and i didn't I mean, I was only aware of him in Pearl Jam, mm-hmm. so I didn't know. And then Shadow didn't, I personally don't know anything about Shadow, but it sounds like I might have been missing something there. It sounds like they were uh, before their time, maybe? Uh, maybe. I mean, they were just, they were a, you know, they were a, a, a good little hard rock band, kind of uh, in the vein of, mm, kind of like uh, Def Leppard or UFO. And, uh, okay. uh they had the 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 Friel brothers uh, uh, were the rhythm section and and Mike McCready being one of the younger ones uh, on guitar and and um, they got a lot of uh, they got a lot of press they they got a lot of really good shows um, they were really popular the girls really liked them um, and uh, uh, they were around for a number of years for most of the eighties and then. Um, like a lot of bands, they just, they just kind of folded. They, they, uh, they, they never put anything out per se. Although, um, Mike McCready has a, his own record label called uh, hockey talker. And, uh, he and talker. talker. Yeah. Talker, hockey talker. Talker. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he, uh, he put out a 10 inch single of uh, a couple of shadow songs and it's a real collectible item. And, we were actually in we were actually in um, negotiations with him. He asked us if we wanted to 
to put out the shadow record. And uh, we were like, well, of course we would be happy to, and, but it was kind of like, well, you've got a label. Why aren't you, you know? So maybe we shouldn't ask that question. Cause I, he decided that uh, he, he wasn't going to go with us, but uh, yeah, he's got, he's, he was in a ton of bands, you know, ones that we know about, you know, Pearl Jam and, and, uh, and uh, Temple of the Dog and, and was involved with um, a lot of other local musicians, either playing uh, guest guitar or producing albums. Again, you know, the scene is, so many people were parts of so many other bands. And, and as you know, if you ever go to shows, it's like half the crowd oftentimes are the other bands that are in the, in the crowd. So, uh, and they're friends of the bands and, and, well, I used to play bass with him, right. I used to play drums with him and, or her. And, and, uh, that's never changed. That's always been kind of a constant. So here's a question for you that just came to my mind. So you're, I'm, Warning, this, the sound you hear is the bus backing over you. <laughs> so you, you keep mentioning, you know, musicians kind of are interchangeable. They move around a lot, right? They're, they're, in the book, is there someone that comes to mind that was in a lot of bands? Like you, you've got them named in a bunch more than somebody else. Like, um, you know, we, was anybody really a gun for hire and would, I would, would say, play? I would say, you know, a guy like Evan Sheely. Evan Sheely is a, a bass player. Uh, Evan Sheely uh, originally uh, grew up in Yakima with Brad Sinsel. Uh, Brad Sinsel being the singer from TKO and uh, War Babies. Um, so, so they grew up together. Um, they moved to the Seattle area about the same time. Um, Evan Sheely has been like the go-to bass player for a lot of artists um, in the 80s, 70s and 80s. Um, he guested on a, a ton of bands' albums. Um, he used to have Bass Northwest. It was a store for, oh gosh, to, better part of 20 years. Um, and um, he was in, again, like I say, he was in TKO. He was in um, Q5. Uh, he's been in other iterations of, of, um, of, uh, gosh, so many bands. I, I'd have to look <laughs> in the book, but I mean, yeah. he's a guy that comes up a lot because he, he was in, he was in bands in the sixties, uh, through now. I, I mean, he kind of retired here just the last couple of years and, and moved to Southern Oregon. Um, but he had been involved in bands. Uh, and helping bands and helping musicians. Um, uh, in, I would say, six or seven different interviews with musicians, um, Evan came up in the conversations as, you know, I would have never played in a band if it hadn't been for Evan. Um, or, um, you know, here I am, this long-haired, greasy kid, and Evan would always take really good care of me. I would come in, he would not talk me down. He'd be like really encouraging and helpful and show me stuff. And he'd always work me a deal. So, you know, I could buy this bass guitar and I'd put it on payments and, you know, he'd let me miss a few. And, um, Evan's just a, just a really great guy, really knowledgeable, really respected. So he came up a lot. Um, okay not only just his involvement with the bands, but his involvement with the music community. So another part of the book, you've got, you've got venues in there, mm -hmm. which we, I said we'd come back to, but you also have recording studios in there. Yeah. 
and publications. Right. Um, I'm saying these things so that I can remind myself to bring them up later <laughs> in the interview. So, so let's, let's go to venues, venues for 200, Alex. Um, what, what venues did you guys, well, let's just talk venues. Just where were some of the cool venues of say the seventies and eighties that were being brought up? Well, um, you know, going back then, you you had places like the East Lake Zoo, you had the Aquarius, you had uh, uh, the Blue Moon, uh, where a lot of the psychedelic bands played. Um, there was actually an aqua, what would they call it, a Green Lake aqua stage. There was actually a stage, a floating stage on Green Lake. Um, Zeppelin, Zeppelin played there. Played there. Vanilla Fudge played there. Um, Sick Field. Uh, the old baseball field where the Rainiers played, um, the original Rainiers. And for, and for one year, the Seattle Pilots. The Seattle baseball, Pilots, that's year. right. And um, so um, those were some of those early venues. Uh, so many, so many venues. But, um, you know, as the, as the 70s gave way to the 80s um, and sort of dance music became more of the more of the trend, uh, you know, there was a, there was a lot of competition for those venues. And so, um, you know, like the central tavern, let's say. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, they played music five or six nights a week, uh, on any given week, you could see, uh, you could see somebody from back in the sixties who was doing something, you know, Jerry Miller would be playing, uh, and then you'd see, uh, mother love bone playing. And then you'd see, um, Pearson and the Rain Shoulds playing, um, uh, the, um, Hall of Fame, um, uh, you know, Meeker's Landing. Um, but for hard rock and metal, um, there were a few places that, that uh, embraced them. Um, uh, the, the Metropolis, they did a lot of punk rock, a lot of hard rock um, shows in Seattle. Um, in Linwood, there was the Riviera Steakhouse. Um, oh, yeah. Had a really good sound system, really good stage, um, and and they they did a lot of shows. Uh, and as I mentioned before, um, we've got uh, Lake Hills. It was called. It was also called uh, um, uh, the Palace at one point before it closed. That skating rink, but a, a ton, a ton of bands, and you know, uh, it was an all ages club. So that was what was really important to build, to build that scene, is because anybody could go. Um, how, how about over in central and eastern Washington? How about Yakima or Spokane? Um, um, anything, anything come up during your research on those those cities? There were there were uh, like the uh, I guess it was the place called the Ranch. Um, <laughs> I want to say. Oh. Um, you spent many, many, many nights there. Yeah. Well, yeah, you, you spent, you spent quite a bit of time, uh, on that end of the state. So, um, gosh, you know, I really, I I feel kind of dumb. I'm trying to think what's, I'm trying to think there was some place down in Yakima that, and I didn't go to Yakima a lot, but I was always curious. There was a place in Yakima called the frontier room. Uh, it was in the back of a restaurant. I can't remember the restaurant, um, but they, they would play a lot of bands in that. And, and I, you know, I'd have to be really motivated to drive all the way to, to Yakima to see a band. I, I stuck, I stuck pretty close to Tacoma and Seattle mm-hmm. myself. James being a, originally a Portland guy. 
saw a lot of shows like at Satyricon and um, at, uh, oh gosh, um, there was a ton, again, uh, just a ton of rooms down there. Um, the, the Starry Night um, embraced hard rock and, and metal down there. Um, but, you know, a lot of venues were um, like the um, VFW halls, Eagles clubs, um, the, the, the Lake city VFW was a really popular place for a lot yeah. of hard rock bands. Um, uh, you had the North shore, uh, surf club in Olympia, um, fourth street tavern, uh, red roof pub in, in, uh, Lakewood. Um, and you know, again, central, uh, clubhouse, um, in Tacoma clubs kind of came and went too. So that's always been the challenge in Seattle, uh, going back to, um, the all age, the all age sort of ban during the eighties. And, and, you know, these kids having a heck of a time finding a place to play. Um, did you guys bring up anything about Parker's roadhouse? Um, Parker's, I think Parker's, I think Parker's came up, uh, you know, Parker's would host a lot of um, sort of like uh, mid-tier national acts. Yep. If you want to call Johnny Winter a mid-tier, I mean, he, he was, you know, he's very popular. But, you know, for, you know, Johnny Winter could play a Paramount, let's say, you know, 1200 seater. But oftentimes he was playing like Parker's and playing for 800 people. And that that was an opportunity for a lot of local bands Um to play anytime you'd have that kind of um that kind of performer you know they're they're looking for local acts usually because they're not supporting anyone on tour i mean they're trying to support themselves so you know ballard firehouse was another um popular place in the 80s and 90s um the the ballard underground was hall um, of fame hall of fame uh parker's um, Astor Park. Astor Park. Astor Park was a good, was a great place. Uh, uh, again, a lot of national acts, you know, U2 played there. Um, and they, Petty, Petty played there once. Petty, yep. Yep. I think so. Um, gosh. But you guys are right. In, in Washington State and the Pacific Northwest has this really um, rich musical heritage from going back, you know, a hundred years, we, we created there a lot of very well-known acts have been created here in Washington state. Um, put you on the spot. You personally, what was the greatest band out of Washington state? Well, I, I guess, I guess from, I guess from, you know, the standpoint of their longevity, um, from my standpoint, from, you know, I think Queensryche, I think Queensryche, um, you know, they're, they've got a 40 year anniversary coming up this, Jeez. this year, next year, somewhere in that range. They, it, it kind of varies. Um, but certainly, you know, Hart, Jimi Hendrix, you know, those all, those all fit in. A lot of people would, would argue and say, um, probably the Sonics. Now I got to tell a story here because I thought, I knew who the Sonics were, but I was wrong. I was watching a couple of weeks ago. I watched a YouTube video from Easy Street Records in West Seattle. 
with the Sonics, but I think it was back maybe 2013 or something like that. And my takeaway was, I don't know that I've ever seen a human being hit drums as hard as their drummer hits. Yeah. I mean, I was, I mean, they're in their seventies, right? Yeah. A lot of, yeah. Yeah. And the energy and stamina that the whole band put out was amazing. And I didn't realize that they were as influential as they were. Yeah. A lot of, uh, a lot of local musicians as well as, you know, international musicians have cited, uh, the Sonics. A lot of people, a lot of people actually say that, you know, the Sonics were like the first punk rock band. When you think of the, the volumes they played at the sort of lyrical content, uh, with songs like psycho and the witch and, um, you know, uh, you know, they were influential to Iggy Pop and the, um, and in his career, I mean, uh, he, you know, he was crazy for those guys, MC five, um, you know, mud honey, Mark arm, you know, has said in many interviews that, you know, the Sonics were, you know, Sonics and Iggy, Iggy pop were, you know, huge, uh, huge influence on his career. One venue, I, I, I go there. Well, we don't go anywhere right now, No, but, um, the tractor in Ballard has been a venue that's, I think done a pretty nice job of, of keeping a fairly broad list of bands playing there. Mm -hmm. I mean, genres wise, they, they don't just really niche it down. Um, so come back to the tractor. But how about let's let's transition into the studios that were recording these bands. What uh, what did you guys find out about studios? Well, you know, there's 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 been a ton of studios and and sort of garage studios for for years and years. Uh, a couple of the a couple of the studios that were really uh, really mixing it up and 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 doing a lot for this area. Um, were like uh, London Bridge. Um, uh, they've been recording bands since the the late eighties. Um, they're no longer no longer in business. But um, you had uh, you had Triad in uh, in Redmond. A um, lot of hard rock bands uh, went through there. A um, lot of demo tapes were recorded there uh, with. Tom Hall, uh, he's a he's a um, he's a big player in the scene. Terry Date, who's gone on to national and international acclaim, um, you know, I mean, he's he's uh, recorded and engineered people as diverse as um, Soundgarden and and uh, Sir Mix a Lot, um, and so um, uh, there were Crow Studios in in Seattle. Um, Gosh, um, there's a uh, uh, Egg Studios with uh, Conrad um, uh, did a lot of recording, mostly pop. But uh, um, I'm I'm certain that there were some hard rock bands that that recorded at Egg Studios. I've got a lot of friends that have recorded um, with with that studio, and and I think that they're also just in the last few years of kind of called it quits. Um, there's always been, there's always been, um, people who've had studios, not necessarily just a, 
um, a business, you know, like a frontline business. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a guy in Port Orchard, uh, uh, Tony Reed, who has a, um, a home recording studio is quite a large one. He records both digitally and an- analog and, um, with today's technology and the cost of it being is more friendly than ever, you know, a lot of studios are popping up and people can do self, um, self recording and editing and things. But back in the day, you know, there was still, uh, you still had to kind of play the kind of had to play the recording game. Um, um, you had to know somebody you had to have money and then you also had to get on the schedule. And, and, uh, so a lot of bands, um, had to, if they wanted to get a, uh, get something recorded, uh, at a, at reasonable price. They were, they were recording at midnight and two o'clock in the morning and, uh, things as such. And I always thought it was because they were late, late sleepers that they didn't. <laughs> well, you know, that's, that is the case for a lot of them, but you know, some musicians had to work, True. had to, had to be able to afford their, their habit. And did you guys, did you talk about promoters in the book? Um, you know, we talked about Jeff Gilbert. Um, Jeff Gilbert was part of the, uh, um, K, uh, KCMU radio station in Washington university, Univ- or not university of Washington. Yeah. University of Washington. And, um, you know, he, he did a lot of promoting of shows. Uh, he, um, he was managers for bands, uh, was part of the Penny Lane record store group, um, uh, through the eighties and early nineties. Um, we've got Craig cook who, um, still book shows as a matter of fact, but he was real instrumental in, in doing a lot of the battle of the bands on the East side, um, with, um, with, uh, um, the Lake Hills scene. He also booked a lot of, uh, bands for, um, up north at the uh, casinos. So he does a lot of casino uh, booking. Um, Jill Hatcher, um, she's a, a gal who has revived the uh, Sky River um, uh, Festival. Uh, she's done it the last f- few years. Uh, it was actually one of the big first, one of the first big uh, rock festivals. Um, I think this year is their 50, w- would have been their 52nd anniversary had they been able to do it um but they they did their first show the year before woodstock um and they have you know you know lots of different acts from the 60s and 70s that have done that show and it's been kind of it was kind of spotty in the 80s and 90s but um it's being revived um um uh, Boy, gosh, you know, there's, it, it, you didn't have to be like a, a full-time working, like promoter of a show. Um, we, we have friends that book shows in the, in the eighties and nineties, uh, Cyrene Pobart, um, uh, just love music and, and, and a lot of her friends are musicians. So she would book, she would book halls, uh, like Washington hall, uh, in Capitol Hill and put on shows, um, you know, even even uh, James and I have booked and and a couple of shows and promoted a couple of um, hard rock metal festivals over the last few years. Again, sort of uh, another another sort of finger of the Northwest Metalworks scene here. We you know put these bands together. Um, you know, there's still a really strong 
do-it-yourself kind of mentality in this area. We we've always, I think we've always been kind of cut off from the mainstream. So I think that's why we've always kind of created this really unique kind of feeling or kind of sound in the in the Pacific Northwest. Who was there? Was one really big promoter in I think in the eighties that brought in all the national acts like to the center. And all. John John Baptiste was a another. Now that's that's a name, but it's not the name I'm looking yeah. for. This guy was I want to say Gary. Um, I could go back and look at some old ticket um, tickets from shows and. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. Boy, yeah, yeah. I can't, Gary doesn't. I hate it when I can't, you know, when I can't pull that, recall that information. Um, yeah, I don't have an endemic memory like like my partner James. That guy, he just knows pretty much everything. It's kind of freaky. So he would know the answer right off the top of his head. You go, it's so and so. Yeah. Well, what? So we have barely barely scratched the book. I mean, let's be honest. It's 900 pages. We've, we've covered 10. <laughs> yeah. So you guys, you got started cause you're passionate about music. You're, you're record collectors, but you have a record store, right? Yeah. I have a, um, it's called inner groove. It's in third street antiques in Puyallup. Um, I told myself years and years ago that uh, if I was going to have an expansive music collection, my collection needed to pay for itself so I didn't uh, have to take money out of my groceries uh, to buy music. So, um, yeah, so so the store is, uh, you know, I'm able to connect with people who are like-minded and want to want music, and I'm on the lookout. And so I do a lot of buy-sell trade, and, and it again, help support my hobby. So yeah, you know, I've always been connected that way. I'm kind of a failed musician. So I supported the music scene from the other side of the microphone, as it were, whether it, you know, going to shows, buying bands, um, swag, you know, t-shirts, tapes, CDs, and then, you know, just, I've, I've had a, a, some kind of storefront, um, for over 20 years. Wow. And your other Arthur, he has a record store down in Longview. Yeah, he's in a he's again he's like in an antique mall as well. So right. again, it's just another way of of uh, promoting our label, but promoting just music and and whatnot. So, are you guys finding uh, how is music or how is album collecting going these days? Are, are more people coming in buying albums to relive their youth? Are you selling more vinyl? Oh yeah, yeah the the the. The hobby, I guess, has grown considerably during the last 10 years. Um, and um, I, I read somewhere here just recently that um, that vinyl actually outsold any other medium uh, for, oh, really? for the first time since 1991. Wow. Okay. Yes. So the, the, it's definitely an uptick. Um, a lot of, a lot of new collectors, um, a lot of people, um, who are rediscovering their collections and also are like, man, I had a great collection. I got rid of it. Now I'm like rebuying it. That would be me. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what I did. Um, yeah, I don't know, but you've heard that story from all of us. I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Well, I, 
yeah, I, yeah, a lot of people went to CDs for a lot of reasons and, uh, vinyl sounds better. I mean, you're going to get a, a lot better low end and that warm sound and, and for collectors, you know, they want the album cover. They want to look at the liner notes. They, you know, they want to crack the seal and smell it. You know, I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy that way, but it is. Oh, I, 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 that was one of the things that bothered me so much about CDs going to CDs. And when I was in college is that, you know, I, I used to, you remember the budget records and tapes on 112th and uh, Pacific? Yeah. Did oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I, I would go in there. And they, I could talk them out of all their posters. And uh, remember when Cheap Trick did the Dream Police uh, album? Yeah. And they had the, they had these cutouts the of, the, of the guy. I got those from them. Oh, I wanted them and so I, bad. And I don't know where they, they are. Oh, man. I, I got um, Stuart Copeland's Clark Kent. Did you ever... Did you ever see Stuart Copeland's green 10 inch? Yeah. Yeah. It's good with the cutout K shape album. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they were, they were good to me. And that was the stuff that it connected you on a different level than a jewel case with a shiny little disc in it that you could play in your car. You know, it was cool, but it, um, Greg Kinnear, is it Craig? Was it Kinnear? Oh yeah, Ken, yeah. Ken Kinnear actually had. Ken Kinnear. Had oh, sorry, the senior moment. That was that was the name I was looking for. Ken Kinnear. Yep. Yeah, he promoted shows okay. as well as having his own um, record label. Yeah. I didn't know he had a record label, but okay. So that was the name I was searching for. So thank. This episode has been a success. We've <laughs> we've, we've solved my my old memory. So let's. Uh, I'd like to before we wrap this up. I, I want to talk about the record label because. I think it's great that you guys are working to reintroduce bands. I think it's great that you are doing vinyl. You also do CDs. I know that, but I think vinyl is awesome. Yeah. Where are you getting these pressed at? Um, We are getting, we're getting our records pressed at Cascade record uh, in Milwaukee, which is um, Southeast of Portland. Um, okay. Okay. You said Milwaukee and I was thinking, you said Cascade records, Milwaukee. And I was thinking there's no cascades in Wisconsin. Yeah. It's a, it's a, uh, Southeast, Southeast Portland. It's in the, okay. it's in the neighborhood or area of called Milwaukee. Um, they moved into the, they moved into the state of Washington, um, a few years ago. Um, they were originally from California. Um, it was a label called TKO, oddly enough, um, and they were primarily a punk rock, punk rock label. Uh, and okay. and um, uh, the gentleman who who runs the label, uh, Mark Rainey, he he still does a lot of punk rock, but they do everything. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and they have seven or eight record presses now. They they started with like. Wow two or three uh eight or nine years ago and now they're up to like seven and they're like busy all the time they're not they're doing local stuff but they're doing you know big band you know national acts um they're just looking for for any place that will press records um and uh, so we get that done there we get our, our we get our mothers or our pressing plates done in california um okay. 
uh, mastering done at Telegraph, uh, again, out of California. And um, so it's, it's a process. I mean, we, it, it, we get our sleeves printed and assembled in Canada. And all this stuff kind of gets mailed to us, and we we assemble it all ourselves, um, partly for economics, um, and uh, but it's also you know you get your hands in it. Um, and we sure. we hand number everything, put them in sleeves. Oh, cool. We do inserts and booklets, and we make it you know we make it a, a, a real nice package with um, with good liner notes and and imagery that a lot of times people haven't seen before. But we're exposing you know. We're exposing to the music listener a, a ton of stuff they've never heard before, and that's really important when you're you're collecting because you want you want to get you want to get something you've never heard before. Um, you want to get exposed to different things. Um, we started off with a sampler um, because we wanted to give people a, a nice palette of different sounds from the Pacific Northwest, and and then samplers. I've always been kind of a sucker for samplers. Um, you know, back in the, back in the days before the internet, you just couldn't dial up, you know, I want to listen to stuff that sounds like simply red, you know, you had to go out and buy the record. Why would you do that? Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, like our first sampler has 11 different bands on it and, um, um, and they're bands that, that sound somewhat similar, but were quite a bit different because there are lots of different styles of hard rock. And so we just wanted to give the the listener, um, you know, just something different. And, and uh, we've been pretty successful with that we've, we've done two samplers. Um, our last sampler was actually in, in homage to the Lake Hills scene. So we've had bands that played Lake Hills. Um, a couple of the tracks are actually live tracks from Lake Hills um, okay. but most of the tracks are songs that have never been released. And so it was really great to, um, to release this stuff to the world, you know, um, um, we've got, uh, you know, we, we did a TKO record that had never been out before. Um, we'd had the music for quite a while and no one ever was going to do anything with it. So we negotiated with the existing members of the band and they agreed to terms. So we released it and, fantastic record um previously mentioned whiskey stick a band that recorded their album you know 30 years prior but never put it out and now they're fathers and grandfathers and they have this record that they can show their kids and their grandkids and say yeah you know i really we really did this um um another band uh um overlord they were kind of a pre the precursor to grunge they had a real kind of punky kind of uh um metal sound kind of almost crossover to some extent um maybe even a little glammy in places um we expanded on their five song ep to a full 10 song album with songs that hadn't been released before and and it was an album an ep or an album that you couldn't find anymore and when you did find it like on ebay or gem or wherever it was really expensive and so we didn't want to rehash the same package. We wanted to enhance the package. So we, you know, we, you know, expanded on it and, uh, and that went over really well. Um, the band was, you know, the band members were ecstatic that, you know, it could get back out into the back out into the world because I think that they were just a little before their time and had they recorded this, this record five years later uh, we'd be talking about that band along with Nirvana and Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, because they were that good of a band. They just were 
just a, a bit of, you know, a bit, of, a bit ahead. Um, we did, uh, we did the first heir apparent record, um, um, heir apparent's another, um, progressive metal band, um, strong guitars and, and great operatic vocals with some keyboards. They were a really great live band. Um, and again, they just kind of fell apart. They had a couple of records out. Their first record was only produced in small numbers to a German label and hardly in the records got here. Um, so that was our, our first full album record that we did. And it met with really great response. Um, we sold most of them to Europe and, and, uh, uh we've sold, that's actually our first sellout. And, um, so, so it's, you know, we, we just felt like it was important for people to rediscover certain bands. And, and of course, along the way, we discovered a ton of bands, um, that we, that we didn't know about that again, you know, we've got a long list of releases we'd like to do. All right. So let's, let's go down that road. Um, well, we're going to pause. I want to ask you a, a Brian Naren question. Where was your favorite venue to see music in, in the eighties and nineties? Mm. Where'd you like to go? Um, I, I really liked, I really liked the central tavern and it was a, a very quaint little tavern. I mean, it wasn't very big and, and that was mm-hmm. kind of common, uh, especially, um, uh, over there in Pioneer Square, a lot of the places were kind of small. There was just a just a great vibe in that room. Um, saw you know saw some incredible bands in there. Um, the sound was okay, but uh, it was just like one of those it places. Astor Park was another great uh, venue. Um, it uh, it was laid out pretty nice. Uh, when they had dance bands in there, there was room to dance. When they had you know hard rock shows in there, they could pack it out. Um, um, gosh, a hall of fame. I loved the hall of fame. It was underground, had a great, had a great look in there. Great sound system. I thought, um, mm-hmm. uh, Waldo's was a great venue. Um, Waldo's was in, in Kirkland. I thought it was great. <laughs> I didn't get any. There's, there. a, there's a story. Yeah, yeah. there, there is. There's a, there's a story. Um, in Tacoma, in Tacoma, there, you know, this, the, the Swiss was always a great room to see bands. Um, did you ever go to the Huntsman? Oh boy. That's a long, yeah. I've been there. I don't remember much about it, but I remember being there. Yeah. Did you ever go to the back 40? You know, um, the back 40 burnt down for the last time before, before I turned 21. So no, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't see any bands there, but a lot of my favorite bands did play the back 40. Did you ever go to Leslie's? Shipwreck was great. Leslie's yeah, was great. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah, no, but there, there was always, you know, there was always a, a scene within a scene at, at Leslie's. Yeah, that's, yeah, that was, did you ever, did you ever get to go to the ranch in Ellensburg? Did you ever, did you ever journey across the mountains? Yeah, I did. Um, yeah, I, I've seen a couple of shows there. Um, and I'll be darned if I, if I, I mean, I, I know I saw a couple of shows. It was probably Pearson related shows. Yeah, um, maybe. But that was, that was a cool event. That was a really cool event. Mm-hmm. It, it was, uh, I was talking to, uh, Mike Wansley, 
and he relayed that at the time the inlaid dance floor was the largest inlaid dance floor on the West coast. Hmm. So inlaid wood. So I was like, interesting, but yeah, it was, that was an interesting, uh, a venue. Okay. So we've, we talked about your favorite. Well, put you on the spot. So I'm going to give you the eighties and nineties. Who is, who is the band that you like to see the most? Who is the most fun for you live? Um, uh, as far as, as far as like, uh, hard rock bands, metal bands, yeah, hard rock bands or any band in general. Well, we'll, we can open it up if you want, but hard rock, let's start with hard. Rock. I mean, um, I, I guess I, I, I would say that, uh, um, a, a band like culprit or, um, band like Faustus, I, I, I really love that band. They were kind of a mid late nineties band and they made it into the book, but they were just, uh, mm-hmm. they were just highly polished musicians i mean queens i've seen queens so many times but you know ironically <laughs> ironically you know I, I, uh, you know it's they you know they never really played clubs they they, mm-hmm. they went from the rehearsal room to the big stage and and their story is a a, a great story um of just serendipity the right place so- right time right people um Right. Ironically, I spent a lot of time in the '80s and early '90s chasing a, a lot of the like dance rock bands, um, like I mentioned before: the Heats, the Cowboys, the Allies, um, Billy Rancher and the Unreal Gods, uh, uh, Johnny and the Distractions. Um, there was a lot of great Tacoma bands: Blue Baboons, Stripes, The Statics, um, The Groceries. Um, a lot of the bands in, you know, in the eighties. Uh, right. Uh, but I, you know, but hard rock's always been kind of, that's your thing, my thing. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to wrap this up. Well, first off, before we wrap it up, your records and CDs only online or are they available in, they're available at your two the stores, but do you, are they at other record stores in the yeah in the, um, yeah our um, our albums and cds are in um four thousand holes in spokane they're at music millennium in portland they're in jet records in salem um they are in um house of records turntable treasures in tacoma um high voltage in tacoma has our product in there um okay. my store of course in puyallup at third street antiques and, um, and then online at Northwest Metalworks music.com. Um, mm-hmm. we have a website with, uh, our product, the records that we've put out, but we also support other labels that support local music. So we have, um, music from lost realm and heaven and hell records, uh, uh heaven and hells in Philadelphia, uh, lost realm is in Portugal. Um, but they, they, they have an affinity for Northwest music. And so we okay. support their, their products as well. Okay. You mentioned Queens, right? What's next for you guys? Well, um, we took advantage of, uh, the fact that, um, a couple of things we, we were done writing the book and we were spending a lot of time, uh, editing, uh, James, the primary writer, James beach, um, he still writes for a living. That's what he does. Uh, he also helps, uh, um, in publishing, um, with another friend of his. And so he's just all about 
books and publications and things as such. Um, I had the mis misfortune of of spending seventeen weeks on on uh, COVID uh, layoff, basically. Um, oh. But I I took advantage of that time. Um, James and I have decided that while we're editing this monster of a book, um, we decided to do another book. And the, the book that I had on my mind was a, a biography of Queensryche. Uh, Queensryche is probably one of my favorite bands of all time. I know a lot about them. I collect them, uh, to the nth degree. Um, but they've, they're also a band that has never had a bio written on them. A band as big international as Queensryche uh, is an important a band in the genre has never had um, a biography. There, there was a couple of guys in Germany who did a really great reference guide back about 95, 96 for the collector mm-hmm. CDs and albums and memorabilia. Um, but their story, if you go online and Google Queensryche, you get this stock story. It's this very kind of plain Jane story. And I knew that there was a lot more to tell. Um, just from my first firsthand experience and, and knowing a lot of people involved with the band. Uh, so we decided that, that this was going to be our next book. And so we, okay. we, we spent a lot of that time during that 17 weeks. Uh, I did a lot of research, um, lining up quotes and I have a ton of memorabilia that will be in the book, just like we did with this first one. It's not going to be anywhere near as big and monstrous, but it's going to be telling a story about a really important progressive hard rock metal band. And, uh, so we're about 85,000 words into it. We've got kind of the, the main story. Um, we're filling in with a lot of interviews. Um, we're building the story around, um, uh, the memories of, uh, the band interviews, um, interviews with their family, friends, um, promoters, uh, other people that had experiences and, uh, it's it's turned out to be really great, and, and there's going to be some great surprises. Um, we're, we're we're telling some stories of people who have never really told their story about the band, um, and we're going to be able to fill in a lot of blanks um, for like the hardcore collector like me, uh, who thought I knew a lot about the band, but I've learned a ton more about the band. So other people like myself are going to really they're going to be thrilled to read i think the information that we provide them and and again you know this is a this is about telling a story celebrating the 40th year of this band's uh existence uh, we're you know we've we've heard a lot of things we know a lot of things you know we're certainly not going to tell a um a, a salacious story that seems to be the best. You, you are not tabloid no no no, no, no. We, we're just that. we're just trying to tell you know a, com- a as complete story as we can uh, about this really unique band, really. I mean, mm-hmm. and they've been able to persevere through the rise and really the fall. And then they've, you know, they've come back into the consciousness. And and not only that, they've they've all managed to to do their thing. And like I say, Jeff, Jeff has got a good career. Uh, he's obviously no longer the singer in the band, but um, he's moved on and doing some great things. The new band with their new singer, um, high level of performances, live high performance, and, uh, in the studio. Um, yeah. So that's what we're in. That's what we're into. And, and, uh, 
our hope is to have this book uh, on the shelves and available for sale uh, the end of this year or the first part of 22 uh, to coincide with um, the band's 40th anniversary. Well, that's awesome. And so thank you for being on here. This is, this is great because I just, I love the fact of how excited you are about this stuff. That This is, this is, this is what you do. And yeah. you're, you're, you got this smile on your face when you're telling these stories that you, you can't see because there's no video for <laughs> podcast, but you, you, you're, you're into this and anybody that puts out a 900 page book on any topic has to be committed, yeah. committed, mentally committed and committed to the process. I mean, it's, it was staggering when it, when it arrived, I was like, cause you know, I told you, you know, I, I told you I bought it right. Yeah. And, and and the tracking number was weird and then it showed up. It was pretty funny, but it's like, I'm just looking at it going, I don't know. This is, this, I, I knew it was, you know, you, you say it's 900 pages on the website. I mean, you, 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 you lay it out. Like, by the way, folks, this is, you know, a really large, but it's once you get in your hand and you start looking through it, it's, it's dense. Yeah. It's, it's, it's dense and it's, it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's really cool. So congratulations. Yeah, thank you so much. I uh, appreciate your support. Um, it's, it's been a really great process. Uh, it's a lot of work, but a lot of joy. And uh, we're getting just nothing but just great feedback. And, and that was our goal. Cause I kind of our mantra is we just want to make people happy and, and, and we're doing that. That's very cool. So, well, I will put links below all of this to find you guys online. I encourage you guys all to, that are listening, go check these guys out. And uh, th- thanks for being on, Brian. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. Join us next time for another episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast.